New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Well, folks, uh, good morning. I hope you've had uh, a chance for a, a coffee or a tea and some refreshments. You're so welcome to uh, this, the first of the, the seminar uh, series, this one on uh, powerful leaders, question mark. Um, I'm Johnny. I'm, I've just been told I have to cover my Man City badge. Uh, apologies uh, for anybody that's feeling the hurt. Uh, if you're maybe a Manchester United uh, fan this morning, anyway. So the, the next stage is to introduce uh, Paul. And whenever uh, I was looking at just his little biog, he's the chair of the New Horizon board. Uh, he's from Lisbon, married with uh, two teenage children, medic pastor, author, theologian. Uh, amazing uh, to, to be able to get someone with all of that uh, coming along to speak about a really important topic. And I know, Paul, you've been busy uh, probably quite a lot with this event, so thank you for taking the time on this. Um, just a little introduction to the, the, the topic. Um, for me, I'm sure for many of you, this is uh, such an important topic uh, to consider. I worked uh, as a consultant working into UK government uh, for 10 years in London uh, and had a le to lead a team. And now I'm the minister of uh, Church of Ireland Parish in Ballyclare uh, and uh, a different type of leadership. Uh, and so we all, especially as I've seen it, we need to think about the integrity of leadership in today's society and in today's church. So such a, an important topic uh, to, to consider today. Uh, we're just going to pray now for, for Paul just before he, he begins. Let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you that your spirit is alive and here today. We pray, Lord, that into this topic that you would speak into your servant Paul now. And Lord, for each of us, whether we are in leadership or whether we, uh, we are in a place where we have those leaders over us, we pray into each of our situations that you would guide us and direct us in this next hour uh, as we learn more about what you require of those who lead. And so grant, Lord, that in all that we hear today and all that we're thinking, that you receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Johnny. Johnny and I didn't really know each other before um, sharing in this seminar, but just chatting to him has been a real blessing, and I feel like we're very much partnering together in this seminar. So thank you for your welcome and introduction, Johnny. Um, thank you for being here. I do want to say at the outset, I am very aware that there are personal stories. I don't know how many, I'm useless at judging numbers, but as many people as there are here, there are at least that many personal stories, probably two or three for each of us, depending on the, <laughs> the mood that we're in. We have our own experiences. We, we've come from places. For some of you, this will be very personal, this question of leadership and the use of power in leadership. And I want to acknowledge that. And I do want to say, if anything that I say is insensitive to that or hurtful, please do come and chat to me afterwards. I need to learn. Um, Johnny obviously gave a little bit of intro to who I am. Uh, those labels in the kingdom of God mean nothing, but they might give you some sense of my life experience, where I've come from, how I might reflect on these issues. And you will have your own way of reflecting and seeing, depending on your work, life, family experience as well. So we need to learn together, and that's why I would love to learn from you and with you as well. Uh, I do work with an organization called Living Leadership. So although I'm based here in Northern Ireland, living in Lisburn, and work from home, um, my role with Living Leadership is across the UK and Ireland, and now to some extent into some other European countries, really developing that organization, uh, growing a network of people, who are available to support and train and encourage leaders. One of those uh, is Alistair Bill, who's sitting up at the front here to, to keep me right, which is good um, in a very healthy way. And Alistair, you may know, has been a, a Presbyterian minister for many years here in Ireland, 
um, and now is retired but still very active both within PCI but also with us which is a great privilege to us and he's one of a number of folks who are available in Northern Ireland and then across the UK and Ireland who work in our name to support leaders are available to meet one-to-one -one. and so if you are a leader and you would value that you can connect with us through this banner or speak to Alistair or speak to me and we would love to support you. I know Alison Mark was around, but I think has gone elsewhere. Alison Mark is another one of those associates here in Northern Ireland. So um, this seminar, the other thing I need to confess up front is that this seminar is very heavily drawing from this book, which I did not write, <laughs> which is not a disclaimer because I think it is a wonderful book and I did help to uh, comment at least on some of the drafts of this beforehand. But this book is available from the bookstall. Marcus Honeyset, who is the founder and executive director of Living Leadership, wrote the book. Um, he wasn't able to come here this week, so you've got me. But uh, I will do my best to be faithful both to what he has said and also to bring some of my own perspective on that a little bit. So as we begin, there is a problem. I think we can probably acknowledge that. You wouldn't be here if you thought leadership was all perfectly fine in the Christian world. There were no issues. Uh, or maybe you would. That's not a bad thing, too. If you are thinking that, well, we need to keep it that way. But I think most of us are probably aware of stories of leadership falls, failings, people who have uh, been removed from leadership or have disqualified themselves, have uh, being taken out, some of those quite high profile, and in the last two, three, four, five years, I think almost if not every sector of the church and every segment and tribe within evangelicalism has had its own stories of that. I am not going to retell those stories. I'm not going to try and pretend to be their interpreter uh, or the definitive judge of those, but we've perhaps read about them, perhaps heard about them, been shocked by them, discouraged, disappointed. Of course, some of those are big global stories or national stories. Some of them are very local and personal to you and maybe haven't hit the headlines. Because one of the issues often in our context, when I said this to Johnny in conversation beforehand, there is when it comes to how leadership functions, whatever our churchmanship, whatever the systems that we have, there is no whistle to blow and it sounds, it feels like nobody's listening for a whistle anyway. So when we encounter problems in a local context, unless somebody is there to step in denominationally or locally, sometimes we find ourselves in a position where we can see that something is wrong, but we have no way to put it right no way to raise a concern, uh, feeling that if I were to say something, this is just going to harm other people who don't need to be harmed by this. Uh, so I'm just going to withdraw, move on, um, and pray and wish that person the best. And that creates a lot of internalization of pain and hurt, but it's better than the alternative in that situation, which is the people who usually social media is the outlet, go on to social media and blast out all of their emotions and thinking and, and often in that context create a lot of heat but very little light, uh, very little resolution or opportunity for that. That seldom, if ever, does any good. That I can understand why people resort to it. I understand where that comes from, but it's seldom, if ever, I think the right response or course to take. So that's part of the problem and the other part is, how does this leave us? What is the impact of all of this? When leadership goes very wrong, when there is abuse, manipulation, destruction, self-protective leadership, all of those things, what do they do? They devastate people. And some of you may be in that category or have been and are clinging on or have recovered by the grace of God. They, it dishonors Christ and it discredits the church and gospel ministry. So this is a serious issue and we've got to learn, we've got to reflect, not only on individual cases, sometimes that's beneficial, although often we'll never quite get to the root of that in the big stories because you weren't there. Okay, you might get to the root of it locally, but also systemically, 
what is it about our systems that support this, that encourage this, and what can we do to do things differently, to do it better? So, as I've mentioned, the book is available. Also, I don't have a printed handout for this week, and that's because we do on our website. If you go to livingleadership.org slash powerfulleaders, either without or without a hyphen, you will get this for free, which is a little summary of the content of the book, uh, including a table, which I'll reference in a moment, which I think is really worth getting your hands on. So, uh, if you do want to get the handout, please go to that. You can download that as a PDF for free. So why do leaders fall? Don't know, don't know why that says Joel 2.32. Maybe I didn't put that. At least I don't think I put that there. But uh, that's not meant to direct you to it, but maybe we should. What, why do leaders fall? What are the big issues that cause leaders to be disqualified? I mean, feel free to shout out, but this is Northern Ireland. I know we don't often like to do that. So any, any, what, I mean, just headline issues. What are the issues that often lead to disqualification of leaders? Sorry? Personalities, so meaning, strong personalities, dominant, overly dominant, which I guess is part of this abuse of power. It's interesting, and I have to be very tentative here, but I have been reflecting recently this idea of charisma and charismatic leadership which sometimes people say, well, that's just the way that person is and that can be used for good. I'm beginning to wonder whether that what we call charismatic personalities, which as I understand it usually means that that person comes into the room and, and eyes are drawn to them, they will dominate the conversation, may actually be in itself a character flaw. Because a key character quality for leaders and Christians in the New Testament is self-control. And if you have not learnt how to control the part of you that will mean you will dominate when you come into the room, if you haven't learnt how to rein that in so that you don't dominate, you see what I mean, so that you deflect and bring others in, there is something wrong. Now that's not, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we don't need people to use the, the personality God has given them. Okay, but, but personality is one thing, character of course is the other side of that. And Christ-like character will look the same in everyone, but will express itself differently in different people. So those people who naturally, either because of their, their beauty or their wit or their intelligence or their you know, quick thinking or their loud voice or whatever, those people who will do that have to work hard to rein that in, to see that character quality of self-control growing so that they don't dominate. Yeah? I might come back to that later, but just when personality is mentioned. Yeah? Sorry, yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there are three biggies, which I'm, I'm going to bring up, and, the, and you see this throughout the history of the church. So, if you're familiar with any of the monastic orders, uh, the kind of thinking that led to those monastic orders, generally when they started, whatever might have gone wrong down the line, but when they were started, they were reform movements in the church, trying to bring the church back and leadership often back to a healthier place. And so what were the vows or what are the vows that they take? Chastity, poverty, and obedience which are dealing with three big things. And you'll see this in the titles of books. You'll see it refer to money, sex, and power. Now, the challenge with that is that two of those, money, I suppose it is, it's not that things don't go wrong, but it's relatively easy to define when something has gone wrong financially. Someone has embezzled money, you know, failed to report gifts, um, kind of manipulated a decision about money, Sex, again, there are clear boundaries. There is one appropriate context for that, which is in marriage, anything outside that. Now, there are questions around the edge about flirtatious behavior and so on, but it's relatively easy to say that was a sexual sin. But power and the use of power is much more nebulous often. And in a sense, you, you could do Christian ministry serve God with no money. I mean, we might struggle to believe that in our culture, but you can. You can do it as a celibate person, never having sex with anybody, or as a faithful married person, 
But you can't do things without power. Power is inevitable. You need power. We'll come back to that in a moment. And therefore, the handling of power is often a trickier issue. But I just want to lay out as we, as we think about this five biblical foundations that Marcus talks about in the book for biblical spiritual leadership. So rather than launch right in with the problems, which I'll come to, what is good biblical spiritual leadership? And we could probably say a lot about that. But five things that Marcus particularly draws out. First of all, there is a spiritual gift. So in at least this list in, in Romans of spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul says, if your gift is to lead, then lead diligently, lead well. God has given this. That is a good thing. So our reaction to abuses of leadership should not be to say we don't need leaders. We do. That is a gift of God. It is for the good of the church, for the good of God's people, and we should be thankful for that. And if that is something God has given us, we need to be careful how we use it. Now, I will say just one thing about spiritual gifts. When we hear that word, or at least I instinctively think that is an ability that has been given by God. And some of what are called spiritual gifts in the New Testament clearly are abilities, something you couldn't do until the Spirit of God gave you that ability, uh, whether that's tongues, interpretation of tongues, that was clearly an ability. But actually, there is within this idea of spiritual gifts, not only abilities, but responsibilities, tasks for the health of the body. And within the body, we need people who will lead and who will do that well for the health of the body. So I'm less concerned about has God given you the gift as someone needs to do this, to step up to this, how can they do that? Because this responsibility is important for the body. And it is for building up the body in maturity, love, and effectiveness. Now here we're going to Ephesians 4 where the Apostle Paul says that um, Christ, the ascended Christ, has given gifts to his people variously. And he has given people, particularly in the church, who are gifted to teach the word. There are a number of gifts listed there. We could look at each of those and ask what is specifically is that, but they're clearly to do with teaching and to do with gospel ministry. The little list ends with pastor teachers, which is probably what we think first and foremost of those who are responsible for spiritual leadership in our churches. Their job, it says, is to build up the body for the work of ministry, to equip for the works of ministry. So very clearly, good spiritual leadership is not just somebody who does the ministry, but someone who equips you to do ministry. And ministry in Ephesians, back in Ephesians 2, is the good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. It's not just in the church. It's in all of life, in the workplace, in your family. The job of those who are given that responsibility. Now, there's a question there that you might want to tease out because I've jumped a little sleight of hand from talking about leadership to talking about pastor teachers. And actually, the word leadership in Romans is probably more to do with organization. And in some ways, a pastor teacher has to at least be organized and be able to do some organization. But they don't necessarily have to be the one who organizes everything or has to sign off on everything. And part of the problem we might have is when we muddle those things. So I don't want to muddle them. But what I do want to say is that spiritual leadership, what we need in our churches from those that we call pastors, ministers, elders, bishops, whatever the words that we use for them, what we need is that they are people who understand that their task is to teach the word of God, to apply the word of God, in people's lives and in the life of the church so that the decisions that are made are not just made on some other ground, business grounds or whatever else, but on gospel, biblical grounds for the building up of the body so that God's people can get on with what God has given them to do. Okay? Thirdly, 
Biblical spiritual leadership works with people for their progress and joy in the faith so that they glory in Jesus. Read that in Philippians 1. Paul says, I want to remain with you. I mean, I'd rather be with the Lord Jesus, to be quite honest, because for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. That's going to be much better. But if I'm going to stay with you, I want to stay with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And I love that pairing. I want to see you progressing, growing in the faith. I want to see that you understand it more, that you live more by it, that you know how to handle the word and apply it to your lives. I don't want you to be coming to me every time you've got a question. I'm here if you need me, but actually my job is to help you know how to progress in your faith so that you can live for Jesus in the place that he has called you to. Not breeding dependency, but developing people who can, who can serve Christ. But it's also your joy in the faith. <laughs> you see that? I think that's quite beautiful. It's not a mechanistic thing. It's not a conveyor belt. It's not a program and you pop out at the end and now you are this fully formed product and we can send you off and you might even become a pastor yourself. It's actually that you enjoy the Lord, that your joy, as Philippians is all about, is in Christ. So as a, as, a, as a leader, that leader will not be just concerned with saying, okay, I want you to know the right answer to this problem that you have, but I want you to be delighting in Christ, finding your joy in him as you journey through the challenges of life. Fourthly, it's exercised through teaching, shepherding, modeling, and spiritual parenting. Thessalonians is our go-to for that. Look at how Paul describes his ministry. He says, we were like mothers among you. We loved you and cared for you. And like fathers who disciplined and guided and instructed you. And he says, you know how we were among you? It's a phrase that comes from the Lord Jesus. I am among you as one who serves. And Paul says, we were among you. We were among you as, as people whose lives were visible. You could see the way we were living and, and growing and progressing and asking questions. And not distant from you, not cut off, not in a little category where we're the one up on the platform and you're the one down there or we're the one in this. We're together in this. And then later on in Thessalonians, Paul says, those who are among you and over you in the Lord. In other words, the pattern for leadership is still among, and yes, over not, over, not in the sense of directing, controlling, but taking responsibility and watching over, but never stopping being among. <laughs> so spiritual leaders are among people, and they lead not only by words, but by example, by modeling. They are parents, not in a sense of you never grow up, but good parents who who want to see others, their children, in that sense, growing up, okay? It's bad parenting if you keep your children as infants, isn't it? So helping others to grow. And fifthly, it works out of weakness, not strength. It works out of weakness. This is 2 Corinthians territory, but you know the Apostle Paul says, what did Christ say to him in his weakness? My grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, in, in my weakness, God's power is made perfect. Yeah? In other words, spiritual leadership is not the person who says, look how strong I am, you could be like me. Or worse, look how strong I am, you could never be like me, but don't worry, just keep following me and doing what I tell you. Spiritual leadership is authentic in the sense that it is real. It doesn't glory and weakness in the sense of going on and, and, and manipulating that to get people on board. That's a danger that, you know, I talk about my weakness so that you feel sorry for me, which means you can't challenge me because you might hurt me. But I can be authentic about the fact that I am weak, that none of this, none of what I do should be for my glory. Uh, it would be a ridiculous thought that it would because none of it came from me. All of it is a gift of God's grace. All of it is God's grace sufficient for my need and for our need. And I, like you, am a redeemed sinner who is 
full of all sorts of confusions and problems and issues that I want to learn and that I'm surrendering to Christ, putting to death, bringing to life, we're in this together. That is good spiritual leadership that I am okay to be weak because actually what the gospel says is not look at how strong we are, but look at how great a savior we are so that our strength is in him. And one of the dangers actually at the moment we talk about resilience through COVID and so on, and that's not necessarily a bad idea. There are things we can do to, to be emotionally stronger. But as Christians, we confess joyfully that I am okay being weak and admitting that I am. Because my faith is in a strong savior. And the reality is sooner or later, each one of us will need to confess that, won't we? <laughs> because the body will fail. So we can pretend for a large part of our lives that I'm strong, but actually the reality is I always have been weak. And that's good. That is by God's design so that the glory can be his and the strength is his and that these things will have lasting eternal significance and not just temporal significance now because, again, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, we'll all answer to the judgment seat of Christ. That's the ultimate assessment, not the position you held or hold here and now, not how well-known your name is, not how many things you can add to your CV of I've done this, that, and that. What, what does that matter? What matters is what Christ will say on that day. Those things of eternal significance. Okay, so any questions or comments? I'm not saying this is everything, but I'm trying to give you a picture of what I think the New Testament is teaching us, particularly, I suppose, these are all from the writings of Paul, who maybe gives us more insight into this, into good spiritual leadership. Any any corrections, questions, clarifications on that? That's really helpful. So I'll just repeat for the sake of the recording that sometimes leaders might be afraid to admit their weakness, um, might be afraid of you know, being seen to be weak so they can hide that and hide their way. And I think that can be quite true. I think that can happen for a number of reasons because how leadership works is not just about the leader. It's also about our churches and our organizations. So one of the things I will mention, but it's really my Thursday seminar, which is not a shameless plug, but that's when I'll develop it, um, that we believe in living leadership. There needs to be a clear commitment on both sides. So leaders must commit to leading well, safely, faithfully, but also our churches must commit to caring well for our leaders. And you see that in the New Testament. There are responsibilities on both sides. So, you know, if we don't, I'm not saying that when a leader does something very wrong, that that's the church's fault. It's not. Please don't mishear me. But I am saying we do need to think about both sides of that equation. So Thursday we will talk. So one of the reasons for fear might be, I, I don't know that people will accept me or trust me. What do people expect from me? If our expectation is of powerful leaders, and let's be honest, when we recruit leaders for our churches, what are we looking for? What personality traits? are we drawn to? Do we dig enough into character behind that? I have to be honest, I see it in the wider leadership scale. I shouldn't point over there because it's not that there's somebody over there. I mean, out, out there, outside this tent because we're all perfect in here, but no. Um, <laughs> I see it in that wider culture that I am aware and I'm not going to spill any beans, and I, and, and I wouldn't try to anyway, because who am I to make that judgment? I'm not the judge, but I can see, I, I, would, I can see people who were, I think, I can see very significant character flaws, and yet they are in significant positions of ministry and leadership and seem to be able to do that. And, and that's worrying because that shouldn't be able to be, but the reality is there's something about our systems. So fear... But the one thing I would say in that is that I don't think scripture, I think our world today, because we are a psychologized world, if you like, we tend to think often in the categories of psychology quicker than we think in the categories of scripture. So whereas psychology might be obsessed with finding the reason why this person did that, because it's probably their upbringing and their whatever. I'm not dismissing all of that. Scripture doesn't really give us that get out clause. In fact, it's more concerned to say there are wolves here, people who, who set out to be shepherds. He says to the Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul, Acts 20, from among your own number, some will arise who will take a following after themselves, which is often what it boils down to. This person wants a following for themselves. They want to, I mean, you can 
put that in psychological terms, they want a following so that they feel important. Yes, but scripture doesn't say poor them. <laughs> scripture says they, they are wolves, they become wolves and, and you must guard against them and that the Lord will ultimately hold them to account. So um, yes, I agree with you. Um, but I think let's, you know, we, we need to think that, that through. Any other uh, questions or comments? Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I'll not try and ask. I won't even ask whether that's a specific. But the question is, what about a statement like you can't question us, but you can ask us questions? I'm not entirely sure I understand that statement. It does sound, I think the danger with that is if that is meant to be a kind of, well, you can ask questions and we'll clarify things, but you're not allowed to question our decisions. One of the things I would say about good leadership, and I think this is clear in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, you know what we were like. We were open with you. We proclaimed the word of God openly, clearly, plainly. We didn't twist it or distort it. You know that you saw our lives you saw whether they matched that or not. You saw how much they did and how much they didn't, but you saw above all that God was at work in it. In other words, openness, transparency is part of good, healthy Christian leadership. And therefore, anything that sounds like, uh, there's bits that I don't want to be questioned about, challenged on that are hidden. And I think actually sometimes inadvertently in our leadership patterns, we can work on that. For example, there's a thing called the black box in leadership, which means you know, the person in the congregation knows what inputted to the box and they see the decision that came out, but they have no idea how the decision was reached. Okay? Now, there are times when that has to be the case, which is why we need to trust our leaders. In other words, if something is very confidential, a church discipline issue, a, a moral issue, you can't open up about that as leaders. But the normal default for most decisions should be not only that people see the decision, but you explain the reason for it and how you reach that, the process. Because there probably is one. It's not that you just plucked a decision out of the air, tossed a coin, whatever, I hope. <laughs> okay. Um, but... But so why not show people that? Because that, that engenders trust. Right? So it's not that people are covering that up deliberately, but we just forget to explain that. We assume that people will trust us. But we need to show them that we are trustworthy. And I think that's not just a modern accommodation to suspicious people. It's part of that Second Corinthians picture of leadership. It's part of that Thessalonians among you things. So, so yes, there are times when we just have to trust that they had a good reason, but often actually showing the reasoning, showing the working out <laughs> is part of helping people come with us on that journey. That may or may not answer your question because I don't know the specific. But any other, maybe one more comment or question if somebody has one at this point and then we'll... Yes. I think that is right. I think there is a sense often that we feel, well, who am I to judge? Let he who is without, I'm repeating the question for the recording, but let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Sorry, I sometimes default to the King James because that's what I learned in Sunday school. But, you know, but we do need to read those verses in context. We do need to understand. So even when, when Jesus says, don't judge or you will be judged, he isn't actually saying never make a judgment. He is saying that you, if you need to know that if you're going to judge others, you will be judged by the same measure. So get the plank out of your own eye before you look at your brother's face. He doesn't say don't help your brother with the speck in his eye, but don't do it hypocritically. Don't, you've, you've got to be open. So what he's calling for there is a community of people who are all helping each other be true to God's judgment of things. Okay, and that is what we need to create. Where, where as a leader, I, I can say actually, I need your feedback. I need you to help me with the specs and planks in my eye, so that we seek out every opportunity to have that. I'll mention that again later. That idea of accountability. But I think you're, I think you're right. In our dealing with these things, sometimes we can be we can be soft because we think, well, we should be gracious and gentle and patient and, and see, try and see the best explanation. And, and that's right. But we also need to be discerning to recognize what is sinful and destructive and 
and humble to deal with that in a way that is not brushing it under the carpet or ignoring it or avoiding it, which never resolves it. Do you, do you see what I mean? And, and I think we're aware of that. When it comes to abuse, like the most extreme cases, I think we are aware that, that the danger there is that if, if I don't deal with this, somebody else is going to get hurt. Now, that does not mean that the victim should feel, I must. It's, I don't mean that at all. But it does mean that we've got to do our best to have a system where actually those things can be identified, can be dealt with. And one of the ways to work towards that might be to have clearer standards that we agree to up front so that then we know what it is that, you know, we can say that is not what you said you would do. Do you, do you see what I mean? Which comes to Thursday's seminar again. Anyway, I must, I must move on for the sake of time. Um, because just to clarify these two words, power and authority, um, very, very simply, power is the ability to do something. <laughs> you know, if you don't have power in your arms, you can't lift your arms and you can't lift things with your arms. If you don't have power going to your, the motor in your car, you can't move it. So power is being able to do something. But it shouldn't be confused with authority, which is the right to do something. So in other words, just because you can do something does not mean that you have the right to do it or that it would be right for you to do it. So I'm going to give you the idea of, of five categories of leadership. Um, and that works around this distinction between power and authority. And the five categories are spelt out in some detail in the handout. Um, so do download that if you want to get this, but they are color-coded in it, and five, I'll start at the end. <laughs> okay, Marcus is English, he probably starts at the beginning, but I'll start at the end as an Irishman, um, that this is the most serious abuses of power. These are the, the, the stories that grieve our hearts and the heart of God. The, the affairs, the... Uh, whether, I mean, we've heard it all, haven't we? Rape, embezzlement, uh, those really clear, serious, where nobody would question that that was wrong. Even, even the world would agree with us that was wrong. Okay, that means that person should be removed or, or shouldn't be trusted in that position. Abuse, um, uh, even, even that persistent pattern of controlling people, manipulating. So I think those things, although we do need to be able to recognize them, and the handout and the book gives specifics on that, we, we need to see those. That's why we have safeguarding policies. It's why we should understand categories of abuse. We must not tolerate that. Those must be dealt with. But if it was as simple as that, I don't think we'd be having this seminar because there are other categories of leadership. And at, at number one, and you'll notice the color scheme, there is formal legitimate authority. So what we mean by that is that there is a clear job description, a clear set of responsibility that you have in that position, and there are limits to that, and therefore it's obvious when you overstep that. Now, depending on our church, we will have that to varying degrees. So Johnny's an Anglican, and my perception as a non-Anglican is there, are, there is church law, there are codes. The Presbyterian Church has a code for its ministers. Um, other denominations do too. I, I have moved in Brethren Baptist circles. These things are often less clearly codified. Um, and in some churches, especially if a person has started that church, um, that there really isn't anything that's sort of clearly in that category. But, but this is where there is a, a job description, there's a, a limit, it's very clear if you do that, you have authority to do this, you don't have authority to do that. These decisions you can make, these decisions you, we need to make, or you need to refer to somebody else. Now, I, I'm not trying to make any arguments here for what is the best system of church government. Okay, that's not the point of this seminar, nor am I saying that if we get this right, if we just codified everything, nothing would ever go wrong. It just isn't as simple as that because the human heart is involved. And, and where that is true, where there are people like me who can be tempted and lured, as we were hearing from Ben, led astray, then that, it doesn't matter what codes you have, you will never stop that. 
but you can recognize it, you can deal with it through the processes. And therefore, one thing that we might be able to do is to think, do we have enough without having too much, but also recognizing that whatever codes we have, we still need wisdom and godliness working within it. So that's one category where things are relatively clear, but next to it is informal, relational, legitimate authority. Notice I'm saying both of these are legitimate. So please don't misread this and think we're saying only number one is okay. Because the reality is that even where you have number one, you have a job description and codes and limits, there is still a lot of your power and authority as a leader that is not codified. It's relational. You can get people to do things because they respect you. You can get them to do things because they think you're in touch with God or you understand God's word or the spirit has revealed it to you, whatever way we describe it. You can get people to do things by getting them to feel sorry for you or loyal to you. Now, again, this is the area where, where things are not as clear and therefore there are risks that perhaps are greater than in the first category. But we can't eliminate it and we shouldn't try to eliminate it. It is a very good thing that people can trust you, that people can, can go with you when, when you're leading them, if you're leading them according to the word of God and, and prayerfully and humbly. That that relational side of things. It wouldn't be good if you just said, here's the textbook about what I should do, number one, and I'm only going to do that and nothing beyond it. Because people aren't like that, are they? And, and ministry is, is about people that the Lord is working with. But we need to recognize this category. We need to know that even, you, I can't fall back and say, well, I did it all by the book just doesn't work whatever book you have. You can never just say that because there is always this dynamic of the relationship, the conversations, the side things, the interconnectedness. I must be aware of it. We must be aware of it. It is legitimate, but it is the next step towards illegitimate other-serving authority. And what this means is that there is an other-serving goal, which is a good goal, okay? This is not a person who is self-serving in leadership. Their genuine desire is that they will help others. But because they focused on that and haven't thought enough about how we do that, they, they end up doing the, the, the right goal, the right end, by the wrong means, you see? So I can see that, you know, well, there's, a, there's an outcome here that would be best for people, that would be good for people, that's going to lead to the best possible outcome. But it's an awful lot of work to bring people with me on that. It's an awful lot of work to talk to all of those people, to listen to them, to persuade them, to influence them, which is category two. Or even to open the book, category one. It's much easier if we just, you know, if I get a the right people who have influence and I have a wee word with them and you know we form an inner circle around ourselves that there may be people who are supposedly the leadership team and they're the people who really should be keeping us to account and helping us whether that's our eldership team or whether it's our our bishop or um, our fraternal of pastors whatever it may be those are the people I should go to, but in fact, the real people who I work through, who I get my means through, are these people over here, because I've formed that group and I've legitimized them. That can start out with good intentions, but it is not legitimate, because it is dishonest. Because on the face of it, you are saying and pretending that this is how it works, but in reality, this is how it works. It doesn't have the transparency that I was talking about before, it becomes manipulative, and so it's, it's, it's not right. And it easily bleeds over, and this is the fourth category, to self-serving illegitimate authority. In other words, now it's not really for the greater good of others. It's actually self-protection, self-advancement, self-service, and I have found a way to do that and I will subvert and work around the policies. I'll bend the rules, I'll twist that, I'll work in this way, I'll make those policies and rules work to my own end. You know, yes, there have to be positions, I'll just fill them with 
yes men, yes women, whatever it is. And this is ultimately self-serving. Now, you might think of this as a sort of slippery slope, but I don't want to suggest that because I've said it, and I'll say it again, numbers one and two are both legitimate. So please understand that. There is, sorry, legitimate authority, one and two, and illegitimate three categories. But understanding those categories can sometimes help us to see where things are beginning to go wrong. If somebody only works in category two and is resistant to any kind of accountability or limits or you know, responsibility or job description, that's an alarm bell. Why would you resist that utterly? Surely there are some things that you would be very glad to give an account for, to have limits on. Um, but easily, again, this number two category of relational authority, the influence I have with people bleeds over into bending the rules to get what I think God is saying we should do, and then bends over into that just being a cover for me getting what I want. And then you can see how it's a shorter step from there to the most serious abuses. So what Marcus has done with this is tried to say, well, here are, 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 uh, is a kind of a, a sliding scale, a, a way of thinking. Like any of, of these categories, it is not perfect. It won't be because things just don't fall neatly like that. But it might be something that would help us to understand how do I make sure I keep my leadership in one and two? How do I make sure my leadership isn't only about two? How do I make sure that the one in my leadership, the formal bits are not inhibiting the two, but that I never allow it to slip into even three? Any questions for clarification on that? And there is much more detail in the handout and in the book, but any clarification questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the comment is that there are 360 reviews in some professional workplaces. Are we afraid to do that in the church? What's the process that might help to guard? And I think, yes, reviews are one of those processes. Good reviews that are ministry reviews, though, and that one of the dangers with looking at the workplace, which I entirely agree with you, we can learn a lot from. We did that when I worked in medicine. There was 360 review. And I think that can be very, very valuable. Um, but it's not, no system is perfect in that sense, but we also need to make sure that what we're reviewing is the right measures. Do you see what I mean? So the danger of a ministry review is that it becomes focused on the, on the statistical measurable things, growth of numbers, income, um, kind of, you know, number of hours spent, um, number of meetings, number of funerals you did well, whatever it might be, and, and not actually on the deeper questions of where are the struggles and where is the need for support and who asks you the hot, tough questions and who, as you care for others, is caring for your soul. So yes, if we ask the right questions, I think ministry reviews are very valuable. I think a 360 element, for those who may not be familiar with that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this may be out of date, but the idea of 360 is that people are looking at that from all directions. So the person who is over me, supervising, the person who is alongside me at the same level, the person who I am leading in various categories can all give an input. I'm listening to all of those. So. Um, yes, that's an interesting idea. I think it would have to be done carefully and well. I think the other thing we do need to recognize is that accusations against an elder, and this is clear in, in the pastoral epistles, must not be entertained lightly and there must be two or three witnesses in that idea. So we've got to be careful that that system wouldn't become a way for one person who's led to just, you know, give a an unfair verdict. We've got to make sure we're listening across the board. We've got to make sure that spiritual leaders step up to that responsibly and hold each other to account. And it seems to me scripture is very clear on that. But listening well to those we lead, I think, is inevitably valuable. So, yeah. Any other um, clarification questions or comments on that? Yes, Alan. Yeah. Yeah, so 
Um, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Did you want to? So, no, so the comment for the recording is that when we see people who are narcissistic, um, people who um, um, even right up to, or maybe on a, on a spectrum, as we might call it, right up to those who might be psychopathic or sociopathic uh, in leadership, that's very difficult. I did comment, I think, Alan, I know you came in a little bit late. I commented earlier on, and I'll say that again, about understanding the nature of Christ-like character. So I talked about self-control, and I think you see this. If you think, I've, I've given away the answer, but the fruit of the Spirit is, well, it begins with love. We, most of us probably know that, and then if you're like me, you'll kind of go in, faithfulness, joy, whatever, okay? Not sure what's in there. But the last one in the list is self-control. And I don't think that's just coincidental. I, I, I do think the Apostle Paul is saying something there about what grows in us. And if you read the qualifications for elders, overseers in the pastoral epistles, self-control, control of my passions, that I'm a one man, one woman man, faithful in marriage, control of my temper, not given to outbursts of anger, control of my desire for money, all of those things are there. And I think we need to do better at recognizing self-control. And what I said earlier is that I'm wondering, but tentatively, to what degree what we call charisma is almost by definition a lack of self-control. Do you, do you understand what I mean, Alan? Because the person, when you first wake up one morning and think, you know what? I could rule the world if I wanted to. <laughs> well, that's the narcissist. That's not true, is it really? But when you think, you know, when I go into the room, everyone listens to me. When I speak, everyone listens. I must be really wise. <laughs> Wonderful, you've got some wisdom to share, but you really think you're the only person. And even if you do have that wisdom, what's it been given to you for? To equip others and develop them. So learning to rein that in to help people to discover how they can come to the right conclusion without you having to tell them every time. Learning to, to say, okay, I can, I can make the whole room laugh. I can dominate it through my humor. To say there's a time for that and there's a time not to. How do I rein that in? People who haven't learned how to do that, I'll go as far as to say, are not suitable for leadership because it's the very heart of the definition of, of the character that is in the pastoral epistles. And I think you're right, Alan. Sadly, sometimes those people are in leadership. And worse than that, there are enough of us around who think they are a good leader because they're charismatic. So actually, we've got the very wrong quality in mind. So I think, you know, was the Lord Jesus charismatic? At one level, yes. He was clearly deeply attractive at one level and deeply unattractive at other levels. And there was nothing in him that we would desire him. Uh, but there was always control. You know, he, he was not always the same thing in every context. So when you see the person who can't be anything but the loudest voice in the room, the one who gets the most airtime, there's something wrong with that. So there will be times when they should get the most air time because they are the one with the knowledge, the wisdom to lead. But there'll be plenty of other times when they're not. And if, they, if that's not the case, that's a worry. So let me um, definitely rattle on because there are coercive practices that, are, that come in with this scale that we've talked about. What manipulative leaders do is they control by dominating and dismantling structures and people. So trying to say these are some of the things to watch out for. Structures. So they dominate, I said this earlier, rather than working through the structure that is there, the, the properly recognized leadership pattern structure, they form an inner ring. C.S. Lewis wrote brilliantly about that. You may know, look it up if not. Patronage. That happens a lot in the wider Christian world. I can get you into that. I'll introduce you to those people. Parallel structures, I've mentioned that, refusing evaluation, or God told me, which either works by the Spirit told me, or it's the Word of God says it. But either way, it's an appeal to God said it, therefore. Unquestionable. So it's not saying that God hasn't told us things, but that we discern that together, not by one voice. I actually think in many of our evangelical churches, we have multiple mini popes. 
So we, we didn't like the idea of one pope over all of us. We thought we'll get just a wee pope in each of our congregations. I'm not, I'm being facetious. It's not as bad as that, but there's a risk. So let's not have that and let's not dismantle people. Silencing critics, again, more of this in the handout. False humility, inaccessibility. You can't really get to them. You can't get a proper conversation. They're not available. Non-disclosure agreements, maybe not so much this side of the Atlantic, but that's, I, I struggle to see how that would ever be appropriate in a Christian setting, an agreement in advance, you know, agreement we won't allow this to be reported. Why, why would we do that through a legal structure? Darvo, deny, um, uh, accuse, and then reverse, I think it's accuse, I'm going to get that wrong, but reverse victim and offender. So the idea of this is what you do is that, that the person comes to you with their concern and by the end of your conversation, the person goes away thinking, you know what, I'm a terrible person because I'm the offender here. That's what abusers do. They turn it around so that that person who brought the legitimate concern now thinks I'm the one. It's the warning shots across the bow. You know, fair enough, I know I could do better in this, but, you know, you've got to think, brother, what's this going to do to your reputation? And, you know, you've had a clash with that person, remember that? And maybe you're got a problem. Now, of course, maybe you do have a problem and you need to hear that. But that's not the point in this conversation. And it shouldn't be the only point, And it shouldn't be a way of getting around, well, what did I do as a leader? Okay? So dismantling structures, dismantling people, taking out the people, so that you end up with all the yes people, all of your fan club. That's not the church as Christ died to form it, is it? All the people who like you. <laughs> Something wrong if that's the case. It actually should be broader than that. The people who, yes, like you, but also are willing to help you grow. So four safeguards, and we've said some of these already. Accountability, and more of this on Thursday. Who am I accountable to? Who can ask me the tough questions? Who watches over what I do? If I'm married, am I properly accountable to my spouse? Do they see and know? Can they challenge and ask the question? Because often they will see things. Do, I, do they just worship me too? If uh, I'm in a team, am I truly accountable to them? If I don't have a team, will I find someone outside who I can be accountable to? It is such a valuable thing. So if the structures aren't there, build that around yourself. Plurality. All of us should be committed to plurality of leadership. This is not, again, a plea for a particular church structure because all of our church government structures believe in plurality. Whether that plurality is in the congregation through multiple elders or whether it's across a diocese through the synod uh, and ultimately with the bishop and the bishops themselves are part of a plurality. So plurality is always a biblical principle for leadership. It should never be the one person who has that authority. It should always be bringing that with others. So you could think about how do I put that in if it's not there or if it doesn't really work despite what it says on paper. Transparency, I've said that already too being as open as you can and only not being open when you really can't, okay? Because of confidentiality and then people will trust you in that. And embodiment and community, back to what I said at the beginning, that your life is among people. You're not distant, aloof. It's funny if you think of the markers of distance and aloofness, and I'll say this because there's a danger it used to be in many of our churches, you could tell straight away who the leader was, you know, or the one with the collar, the sitting up in that seat, whatever. And then we think because we remove some of that power distance, that then the, the power distance is gone. <laughs> you see what I mean? Because I now dress like everybody else. And that we've leveled out the seating and we don't have such a high lifted up pull, but, but it's still the one with the we Britney mic on, isn't it? <laughs> that in itself is a marker of some kind of, you, you know, so we've got to be real and say there is still a power distance. And if I do not work to make myself accessible to people, people will put me on a pedestal and either will think I'm beyond challenge or how could they or why would they or what would they know to challenge me? So you have to make the effort to say that's not the way I'm going to be. 
Four safeguards, more about that on Thursday. What can we do? Honest self-review and peer review. Um, in something called our Leadership Commitment Scheme, we have tools for that in Living Leadership, which we're happy to share with you. But it's being able to say, okay, let's do an honest, proper ministry review. Self-review, stopping to reflect, taking time out from the busyness to ask, where are the warning signs? Which of those color codes am I really in? Because when you're busy and you're just going through the motions, the shortcuts become attractive and they work and it seems like they work, so they become habitual. But stop and review and let others review. Peer review, I've said, 360 review might work, but especially review from spiritual leaders who are committed to the same values. Corporate review, so that's the 360, the kind of, but what I'm talking about there is not only reviewing the individual's ministry, but reviewing your systems. Do we have the right system? Why? Because churches change, they grow, they shrink, they add new ministries, new people, and therefore the, the, the systems that worked back then might not work now. So review that. Do we have the right systems? Do we have the right ways of operating? Is this working for the good of both the people and the leader? And because it is about a commitment to that leader as well to help them stay faithful. Repentance, forgiveness, restoration. We've got to be gospel people in how we handle these things. Let's be humble to admit when we got it wrong. I know that this is often tied up in the modern system with employment law, and it's like, well, I can't admit that I got it wrong or they could take a case against me. But we are first and foremost gospel people. And if there is a cost to that, it's better to take that cost than to become someone who covers up. We must be repentant, Seek and offer forgiveness as the Lord forgave, Colossians 3, so we must forgive. And restoration, question mark, <laughs> because there is a question with leadership as to whether restoration is possible. It is one thing to say we will restore into fellowship as brothers and sisters to be able to regard one another as in fellowship. That's not the same as saying because that has been done, I can now go back into leadership. And one of the great tragedies is when you see people who are taken out of this position who end up in that position and there's no clarity that they've gone through any process of review, openness. That should not happen. It can happen because of the complexities of our evangelical world. There will always be another congregation that will call them. There will always be another organization that will employ them. But we, in our part, must do better than that so that that doesn't happen. And restoration is not always possible. Uh, you know, if somebody is insisting that I am a leader and I should be leading again, that's a warning sign. Because they might say, the Lord called me, the Lord told me, but actually, this is not about me, is it? This is about the health of the body. And there are lots of ways I can contribute to that without being called a leader or in a position of leadership. And uh, sorry, lastly on that, our leadership commitment scheme may help you. Please, if that might help you, come on Thursday. I know the time is up, by the way, and I will be wrapping up. So just to say the end, I've said this at the beginning. Again, I've shot myself in the foot. But remember this. If you are a leader, what does Paul say? We make it our goal to please the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, why am I closing on that? It's the end of my seminar, but it's also the ultimate end, isn't it? This is where we're heading to. If you have been on the wrong side of bad leadership, and I have, you may feel there will never be justice I can't tell anybody, I don't want to harm other people, I don't know how I would, there's no recourse. There is recourse. Ultimately, you trust yourself to the Lord. And I think that may help us to hold off the dangerous stuff of going onto the battlefield in social media or you know, whatever it may be that isn't going to achieve anything. But on the other hand, if we are leaders, let us remember this accountability. That's Paul's talking to people in Christian ministry like himself. Uh, even as an apostle, he's saying, I'm going to have to do that. You will have to do that. That's what matters. 
So if the choice that you make now will harm you because you're going to blow the whistle, even though you know that the power brokers will not be listening and you will be silenced and out in your ear and unemployable and blacklisted, if it is what is right and you should do it to protect others, do it courageously and trust that to the Lord too. And if you need help with that, I'm here. <laughs> Living leadership is here. Others are here. We would want to walk with you. We're not brokers. We're not going to investigate. We don't have that authority. We don't want to. But we'll walk with you as a friend and a listener and pray with you and encourage you because we've no agenda other than your well-being in the Lord. Okay, I am sorry that I misjudged the time. That's not uncommon with me, but actually I was thinking it was an hour and a quarter, but that's my fault. I should know. I mean, being on the board, you really should know these things. And so I apologize to those who've already gone who can't hear me. I am happy to stay around. I'm even happy to take a question or two now from the floor if, if you're not rushing off, but we do need to leave by one at the very latest. But let me just pray briefly. Father, I pray that whatever is useful and good and true and noble and reflective of Christ and of your word in what I have said would rest with people, would be useful to them, and in what Marcus has said in the book. And whatever is not of you and noble and good and true, would you strip that away, Father? Our desire is to glorify you. And that doesn't just mean I had good intentions. It means that we do things the way you have called us to do them. So teach us that and help us help one another so that we, despite all that is wrong with Christian leadership, do not become cynical and so that we do not throw in the towel and so that we can do whatever we can to create a healthier culture, at least in those spheres that are open to us. And so we pray this in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus, praying for your healing and restoration for those who are wounded, who've been mistreated, and your forgiveness for us for tolerating what we shouldn't have tolerated, for encouraging what we should never encourage, for pandering to one another, flattering each other, bigging up each other's egos rather than helping each other to remain joyful in you and progress in the faith. So lead us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.